Hi, I'm Liz Cully, and welcome to a special episode of Cool, Cool, Cool. In this series of episodes, I chat with cool people about parenthood. From my fears of getting pregnant to selecting a donor to how to juggle a career and a family, we talk about it all, and nothing is off limits. I was looking for a podcast that represented more of what I experienced in the world, and I couldn't find it, so naturally, I decided to make it myself. So, welcome to, I guess, an adult version of Cool, Cool, Cool. I'll be the first to admit that sometimes I don't see the point in TikTok. I know a lot of people learn things, but for me, it will always kind of be this weird dancing app. But listen, I'm I'm trying on TikTok. Follow me on TikTok. I think after I'm a woman and I went viral on TikTok, I have new feelings towards TikTok. But what I also am starting to discover about TikTok is that there is a wealth of actual real and good information there. And I was thrilled, thrilled to learn about Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley. She is an incredible doctor in D.C., also the CEO of Power to Decide. She has been doing these like Ask Dr. Reagan Anything TikToks that have been going viral, really about, you know, reproductive health, rights, etc. How do you check a condom to make sure that, you know, it didn't break? Or what do you do if you want to get an abortion? Like, what can you expect Questions I think a lot of people want to ask doctors, a lot of young people want to ask doctors, but perhaps, I don't know, they're too scared or, you know, maybe the legislature in their state is preventing them from getting the health that health care that they deserve. Thank you very much. I had an incredible conversation with Dr. Reagan. I feel honored and privileged to have her on the show, follow her. Like this is, you know, somebody that is really doing an incredible job at like moving important messaging forward through a platform, you know, that I think people are really paying a lot of attention to. And um, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Reagan for her guidance and giving me the time today. I mean, I did get like weepy and emotional. <laughs> On this episode, I was ovulating, um, so warning. Um, but again, her series is hashtag Ask Dr. Reagan on social media. I really can't thank her and her team enough for giving me her time, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, first and foremost, I feel we talk a lot about TikTok on this show and how my storied relationship with trying to be more Gen Z on TikTok. But I feel like, Dr. Reagan, you have cracked the TikTok code. You are one of the Gen Z. You are a TikTok queen, so to speak. Yeah, I'm definitely not Gen Z, but we are trying very hard to sort of reach people where they are. And the reality is that many more young people are getting information on TikTok um, including information about the news and including their health information. And so we've been deliberately trying to put more content there. And it's been a really great opportunity to reach folks. So there was a video that I posted over the summer 
simple video just about how long an abortion takes that explains a little bit about the differences between medication abortion and procedural abortion. And that video has over a million views already. We also have views that have been really popular about like, can you get pregnant in a pool or a hot tub, which is a really common question that we get um, and have some content about on our website as well. And then another video was about throwing up the birth control pill and like sort of what to do, which is a really common scenario. Someone might miss a pill or throw up a pill or something like that. So all in all, you know, we're reaching people where they are and that is become increasingly important as it can be really hard to navigate the healthcare system and get answer to the questions that people need. Well, and it's amazing that, well, first of all, I need to know if you can get pregnant in a hot tub or a pool. But, and so we'll circle, we'll circle back to that because I'm like, can you get a pregnant in a hot tub or a pool? Um, I know you can definitely get a STI or a UTI and all sorts of things in a hot tub or a pool. But, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, it's like we really, and I grew up in San Francisco. Uh, some people kind of, I think if you're not from San Francisco, look at it as a really um, liberal place, but it can be actually quite conservative. There's definitely, you know, pockets and whatnot. Luckily, I was in California, which generally speaking is typically a Democratic, more liberal state or has been, but wasn't always. But, you know, really the only place we had for reproductive information, care, women's care, and and otherwise, if, if you didn't have cool parents... (laughs) that we're talking to you about it, which I did not. I had like much older parents was Planned Parenthood. So it's incredible that you're sharing information about, you know, reproductive health options, like what, you know, those, you know, with periods can do in regards to either abortion care or or pregnancy health and and that. But before we get too, too deep, can you get pregnant in a hot tub or a pool? Like talk to me right (laughs) now. Like I need to know. So first of all, sidebar, I think, you know, people sort of romanticize and there's a lot of like TV and film content that romanticize penis and vagina sex in like hot tubs and pools and showers. And because of the way that bodies work and lubrication works, it's actually like not that fantastic. So that aside, um, typically the worst, like it's the worst. (laughs) Actually, yeah. <laughs> I mean, any anytime someone is having penis and vagina sex, there's a possibility of pregnancy. And so that's, you know, really important to note, you know, and, and as you said, people also worry about getting infections. Um, usually the heat is high enough and there's enough chlorine in there to kill bacteria that, you know, assuming that it's well maintained, but it is something to be concerned about. But in terms of getting pregnant. You can't get pregnant just from sitting in a pool or a hot tub. But if you have penis and vagina sex in a pool or a hot tub, it is possible to get pregnant. (sighs) What a time. What a time. I just think of all of the, yeah. And I think even just, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Sex and water actually, regardless if it's penis and vagina sex, because I've had both. I've had vagina, vagina, penis and vagina sex in bodies of water. And both of them, while the partner might have been great, it wasn't the best. It yeah. really, it's it's really not the best. What so it sounds like you get that question a lot. What are some of the most frequent questions you get about, you know, women's health, reproductive health on TikTok? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really big one. Another question that's often asked is about if, if it's okay to use drugs, um, uh, specifically cannabis before having an abortion mm. um, or drinking before or after an abortion. 
again, you know, what to do if you miss a pill? Is it okay to take two pills in a day is another really, really common one. And then people often have questions about their own medical concerns and whether or not birth control is safe for them. So for example, like I'm a smoker, what birth control pills can I take? Or I have fibroids or other conditions. And so it's, you know, not uncommon for people to post these questions on TikTok or Twitter or other places. um, And they're seeking answers. And oftentimes there aren't trained medical providers answering their questions there. So that's a space that we're trying to lean more into. I love that because it's great that you are a trained professional. A lot of medical professionals don't use a lot of social media. I, I know even my wife who she's a mental health provider, but she doesn't like being on social. So I think it's so incredible that you've created this platform where there is sound information being shared by you, but then also you can be a soundboard for people. Obviously, people should go and seek their, I'm sure, their own medical professionals in person if they can and et cetera. But it's so, it's really, that's the wonderful part about the internet, right? Like, I think there's a lot of downsides that we talk about misinformation, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation. There's like bullying, but then there's also this like beautiful thing about social media and the internet where information can get shared and it can go to places that somehow, you know, have been sheltered from information from their own familiar situation or their education. You know what I mean? It's like a really, it's actually a wonderful, wonderful thing. As you, that's right. I mean, just as you stated, it's like a really powerful tool, right? And like, remember when like newspapers came out, people were like, oh, this is, you know, terrible. People are going to propagate bad information. And the same thing (laughs) with the internet came out. Like, it's a tool just like any other, and it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're using that tool responsibly and flooding it with evidence-based information that people can access in a way that's understandable, you know, to them and resonates with them, which again is what we're trying to do at Power to Decide with our assets like Bedsider um, and our content with abortionfinder.org. And it's a really important way to democratize access to this important information because people largely aren't getting comprehensive sex ed in their schools, right? Like it largely depends no. on like where you happen to live. And you know, if you win the parental lottery and have parents that are gonna have these conversations with you, but unfortunately, many of us hadn't. And I didn't realize actually how uncommon this was until I went to college and realized that so many of my peers around me had no, sort of never had these conversations with their own parents about sex and pleasure and protection and sexually transmitted infections. Um, and although I had older parents who were very religious, they sat me down and had these conversations with me, I think because they had raised other children and perhaps didn't have those conversations in a constructive way. And people, you know, are seeking that information and are often going to talk to their friends who don't know anything oftentimes. So we have these powerful tools through the internet, through social media to democratize access to this important information. And it's unfortunate, right, that we can't count on communities and schools and some of the traditional places where sex ed was provided to, to do that but we have this really great powerful tool to sort of step into that gap and help people find out more about their bodies and healthy relationships and contraception and how to protect themselves. And so I'm really excited to be creating these videos and increasing more access to information for young people. A hundred percent. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing thing what you're doing. And also, you know, I think given where we are from a legislative standpoint with Roe versus Wade, it's I love that you're talking about obviously everybody's options, but, abor- you know, not only abortion care, but also to prevent pregnancies if that if you're not in a moment where you want to be pregnant, you know, I mean, so I remember in high school, like 
you know, friends getting pregnant. And it was just like, it was so intense and so emotional. And, you know, luckily I had a good friend group and we all supported each other. But like, I definitely went to Planned Parenthood a few times with friends who got abortions. It's terrifying and it's scary. And I think it's interesting because it's like, oh, well, it was you know, 20 years ago. and But we had Planned Parenthood and it was actually, the providers there were incredible. The people that worked at Planned Parenthood were always really, really kind. Even when I went myself, like I got my first pap smear out of Planned Parenthood because I had, you know, older friends that were talking Mm -hmm. about it, but my mom wasn't talking to me about it. And I knew, you know, that was something maybe I should go do or, you know, get at least an exam. Um, But then 20 years later, I'm like, oh my God, are we even in a worse place than we were 20 years yeah. ago i mean we are it's just we a are really, we absolutely yeah are. you know yeah. and it's so sad right like i dream of a reproductive health utopia where abortion's not stigmatized and if somebody ends up getting pregnant in a time that doesn't make sense for them it's not a big deal for them to get abortion care in a person-centered manner in their own community you know in a way that makes sense for them like that is a utopia that we should still try to fight towards. But the reality is that is absolutely not the case for almost half the country right now, where people don't have access to abortion in their own community without potentially legal risks or having to travel you know, out of state. And it's important for people to know that abortion is common. One in four people of reproductive age will have an abortion at some point in their lifetime, right? And people who have abortions are more likely to be Um, to live with lower incomes and to be people of color. And so those are the people that are having to navigate this incredibly dangerous and complicated system of traveling out of state. People who have abortions are also more likely to already be parents. So they're not only having to like save money to try to figure out how to get abortion care in another state. They're also having to navigate childcare and what to do with their current children. I mean, it's really a sad state where we could be putting more resources into education and prevention and this utopia where abortion is not stigmatized and available when people need it, but instead we're doing the exact opposite and potentially creating a system system where people are having to bankrupt themselves or make really hard decisions about you know what bills to pay or not pay or childcare to pay or not pay to access essential reproductive health services. I mean, it's bleak. It's really I mean, because you're ever. It's true. How if you have a if you have a small child. And you need to travel out of state. Like, what are you going to do? It's yeah. just, it re- it's heartbreaking. I think. Yeah. From you know what I mean. It really, really, it breaks my heart. And you know, it's. I work with a lot of young people, and you know, growing up in San Francisco in the '90s, the AIDS crisis was really, hmm. really pre- like yeah. in our faces. My cousin passed away. I saw his partner and his friends pass away. As a ten-year-old, like seeing the AIDS and HIV crisis mm-hmm. was wild. I mean, really, truly, yes, pregnancy was always on my mind when having sex with men where I was like, whoa, nope, nope, no, nope. you know, uh, pregnancy, but it was also sexually transmitted diseases. Of course. Which yeah. I feel like now, especially with online dating, I don't know. I mean, I hear a lot of young women I know that are that have heterosexual sex. They're like, I never use protection. And I'm like, mm. girl, what? What are you talking about? You know, I mean, and yeah. it's so interesting because 
20 years ago, I really feel like safe sex was in the zygote. Like we talked, you saw it on MTV. Yeah. You saw TLC, like, you know, using condoms in their in their music videos, which I love. And then there was this weird wave. And, and maybe I'm wrong. And, and again, I'm in a very different life place than I was. Like, I mean, I'm trying at this point to get pregnant, so, which we'll get to in a moment. It's kind of yes. opposite. But like, you know... It feels like no one's really talking even just about like safe sex, like how yeah. to protect yourself from a variety of things. And, and I think that is so troubling as well. You know, you're not wrong. Um, and I will say, you know, as someone who had close family members, including one of my brothers who passed away from I'm sorry, um, complications of AIDS, like this is something that is really important. And you're not wrong that people aren't talking about safe sex as much. And the result of that is that sexually transmitted infections are increasing in the United yep. States. In fact, we're seeing rates of syphilis um, right now in parts of the country that are higher than ever before. And in part, it could be because now, thankfully, right, like we have these amazing tools, uh, medical technologies that can help prevent HIV infections in the form of PrEP medications, right? Mm -hmm. And we have highly active antiretroviral therapy such that like if we really invested in this, we could get rid of HIV in our right. communities now, right? Those things are real. Um, and sort of now HIV has become something that people can live with and die of other causes, which is great and brilliant, but it can mean that in some contexts that people are less likely to use condoms. The other thing is there's just like less investment in our public health care system. And we saw the ramifications of that during the pandemic, right? right, where we were struggling to sort of create infrastructure to test people for COVID and treat them, et cetera. That is also the case for sexually transmitted infections. And so it's not surprising that rates of chlamydia and gonorrhea and syphilis um, specifically are, are rising. And again, we have all of the technology, we have all of the willpower to actually completely change the tide. Rather, we have the technology and we have the capacity to change the tide. What is missing is the willpower and the investment to do that. Do you get a lot of questions from either bisexual or heterosexual women about PrEP? online ever? So definitely from bisexual women, not yeah. so much. And from heterosexual women. Yeah, sure. definitely. I mean, I think people sort of think of PrEP more for MSM, for men who have sex with men. Right. But in some communities, especially among Black women that identify as heterosexual, they can have significantly high rates of risk of HIV compared to other women. So it's really important that people are aware of this technology and not just think of it as something that's only for men who have sex with men. Yeah, I interviewed um, a local government official in Atlanta and we had a long conversation about women who, specifically black women who identify as heterosexual in his community, they were seeing really large, you know, numbers of HIV, like p folks getting HIV and I new was wondering, infections. Yeah, yeah, new infections. And we were talking about PrEP because I don't, I mean, listen, most of my gay and queer male friends are on PrEP. It's just something, you know, I never really thought of. Um, I also haven't had sex with a man in 11 years or 10, whatever, a really since before I met my wife. So a long, long time. So, yeah. um, and I know things have really changed in the last 10 years, but it's just something, you know, when I hear, when I when I see young folks and I hear young folks and they're telling me that they aren't using even just, you know, preventative methods like condoms for pregnancy or whatever, I'm like, dude, think about prep, something. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you yeah. I mean, about? So much training that needs to be done for yeah. providers to be able to like adequately have these conversations with their patients and to be able to just ask the basic questions of like, 
who are you having sex with? What body parts do they have? You yeah, know, yeah, who yeah. are their sexual partners? And to be able to sort of stratify and mitigate risk. Um, and, you know, there's a huge lack of training uh, yeah. on the part of providers to be able to like have those really important conversations. And then there's a lack of awareness about PrEP and that it's, you know, available and that it's super effective and safe. So it's really great that you're lifting this up for your listeners. Yeah, 100%. Ladies, listen, prep, prep, prep for your kids too. Yeah, no, 100%. That's why I like to have these, I think for so long, there were conversations that were like queer conversations and then straight conversations. And what I love about this show um, I loved my last show. I loved all all my babies. I love them all. But, you know, for this one, I really love the fact that, like, yeah, we talk about a lot of queer stuff on this show, but it's we're we're blurring the lines here on like, yeah. you know, especially with a generation um on TikTok, a lot of Gen Z folks, you know, queerness and a lot of their issues are starting to blend together yeah. and, and and their friend groups and and what they talk about. So I think it's important for everyone to know like gay issues are everybody's issues prep yeah. should be everybody's issues hiv aids abortion care legitimately should be every person in this world in this country it should be everyone's issue it's not everyone's just, issue you know somebody with a uterus you know what i mean it's like no, no no it's everybody's issue i couldn't agree more i mean that's absolutely what i'm seeing in my clinical practice that there's more gender fluidity there's more fluidity of, of you know who's whose people's partners are and what body parts they have and how they refer to them. Sure. Um, so again, more just awareness of this and then sort of a suggesting care or, or based on an individual's sort of life circumstances, the partners that they're having, the types of sex that they're having. But again, providers need to be trained to have those conversations in order to be able to recommend what's appropriate for the individual. I am in the process of trying to get pregnant. It's, it is very different than what I saw growing up with heterosexual parents. Yes, I had a lot of, you know, queer people in my life growing up. Yeah. But none of them really had children. I was a nanny for a lovely gay couple and they had used surrogacy and a donor egg. So I okay. you know knew those kinds of options about that younger, I guess, maybe more than others, et cetera. Adoption, obviously, which is a wonderful option for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um but for me, it's like, I've got to pick a sperm donor, which let me tell you, it's a very weird process. It's a very weird process to look at like baby photos and, you know, charts and what what have you. It's it's definitely something different. But then also preparing my own body for IUI and mm -hmm. IVF. And also the assumptions that people make yeah. immediately are pretty are pretty crazy. Is there anything like do you ever give anyone any kind of like advice if they're the person about to embark in insemination? Because it's, you know, obviously different if you at one one point I talked to one practitioner. They're like, yeah, just like have a lot of sex. I'm like, are you not hearing that I don't have <laughs> sex with men? Like, what are you talking about right now? So how can one do you have any advice in terms of like people who are about to go into an IUI or an IVF process for their bodies, like even just generally? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think taking a step back, you know, making sure that you have a trusted provider with whom you feel safe and comfortable and who sure. understands your situation and goals is like paramount, right? Yeah. Um, and so that people are not speaking to a circumstance that doesn't apply to you. You know, ideally making sure you understand your menstrual cycle and tracking ovulation, you'd be surprised actually, like, because of like what we talked about before and just like low health literacy about reproductive health that many people just don't even like understand like when they can get pregnant right so that's really important 
there are a lot of fertility kits and monitors available that can help as well as just, you know, things you can do to track your cervical mucus. I love saying cervical mucus. Um, People love that. Yeah. Let's talk about. Well, (laughs) so I have used a period tracker, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, it's free. My I think it's called like my period. I have been I used I had like some crazy, crazy period. Whatever. I got my period really young. I got my period at 10, which let me tell you, nobody was talking. They were like, what? What's wrong with you? You're a freak. You know, all those amazing things. But I was having heavy, heavy periods. So I wanted to like track whatever. So I've been tracking my period for like 14 years, which is amazing. It's a lot of data and it's free on the app. So that's been really amazing. But how are those ovulation? Like you can like plug them into your phones. Do you have any patients that have used any of those? Or are you familiar? Like, do those work? It seems crazy. You're like plugging in something in your phone and like peeing on a stick. I don't know. I don't. It seems wild to me. There's lots of different technologies. Some are um, checking your basal body temperature because there are fluctuations in your body temperature throughout the ovulatory cycle. Some are looking for changes in your hormones and specifically what's called an LH surge sure. or an increase in luteinizing hormone. Um, so there are different technologies and you know you can try multiple of them and see if you're sort of getting accurate information for, for all of them. Again, there are sort of low tech ways of just sort of taking your own temperature or checking your cervical mucus every day and looking for changes. And there's what a does lot of one, information. What's the change in your cervical, like if it's thicker, if it's a different color, like what is that? Exactly. So cervical mucus usually is pretty like thin, transparent, see-through, watery kind of. And then mid-cycle, it will often come, become thicker, more mucusy, And that's a sign that ovulation is happening or has just happened. Um, so those are some of the changes to look for. And then in addition to all of these things to sort of track your cycle, understand do you even have regular cycles? Are you ovulating? When do you ovulate compared to when you have your LH surge, when you ovulate compared to the first day of your period, I think the social aspect of this is also really important too, right? Like create a network of of people around you with whom you feel comfortable talking to going through this. In my patients who are queer and trying to get pregnant, sometimes they can, you know, have this tension of opposites where they're like super excited about the idea and like wanting to get pregnant, but also just like pissed and having to like go through all this, right? Mm, like, compared to yeah. other couples or under other individuals who are just like, oops, I got pregnant. They're having to like be super deliberate about this and track their periods and potentially take injections and take medications and undergo somewhat invasive procedures. And that can feel heavy and unfair sometimes. Mm. Um, and so I think it's really important to have a social network around you who aren't going to judge you and, you know, can commiserate and empathize with you about those contrasting feelings all at the same time. The process can also take a while and there can be multiple disappointments along the way of, okay, I I think I'm ovulating, but I'm not. Or I think I'm getting, you know, I might get pregnant because I ovulated and then you might not, or you might even get pregnant and then it doesn't stick or you might have an Mm -hmm. early miscarriage because a lot of people don't realize that many early pregnancies don't last and we sort of just see them as our periods, right? So there can be a lot of disappointments that can take a lot of time and frankly can be expensive. And all of that, again, can feel really unfair. Yes. (laughs) Again, I mean, I think about even some of my friends who are like, oops, yeah, I just got, you know, like drunk and pregnant. And you're like, damn, dude, I wish. I mean, I say it all the time. I Not that you should not need to have any alcohol or whatever to have get pregnant. Have a good night. 
whatever that looks like for you. If that's <laughs> yes. eating a bunch of candy or having a couple of cocktails, whatever. I just laugh because I'm like, oh, come on. I wish I could get accidentally yeah. pregnant because it is this balance of really trying to stay calm. And um, it's interesting. AMH, which are, I, can you explain what an AMH level is? Anti-mullerian hormone. So there are like various tests that that we can do to sort of see um, your what's called ovarian reserve mm -hmm. um, or, you know, how many eggs you have left in the tank for lack of a better comparison. And so that's one of the blood tests that's used to just sort of say, like, are you ovulating? And, you know, how long might you have or how many cycles might you have to be able to try to get pregnant? So this is something that I've done now twice. And it was it's like the first thing when I went to this previous doctor, he asked me and I was like, it's 0.47. He's like, oof, that's real low. And, you know, you start to like panic, basically. Yeah. You're like, oh, my God. But then what's really interesting is that was last year. I've spent six and a half months going to my incredible acupuncturist, which we talk about, Russell, all the time on this show. And my AMH increased significantly. It's now point six nine. Is are there things? And I'm not asking you if acupuncture is you know, whatever, because I know it's some people say it works, some people don't. I know it kind of can get tricky in the medical field about like you know I don't know the validity of acupuncture. It worked for me, but are there other things like even diet, exercise, etc. People can do to increase AMH because I didn't think you could. Is it is it related to stress sometimes? Like how? I don't know. Yeah. It, you know, it's important to know that like we people with uteruses and ovaries are born with all of the ovaries that they're ever going to have. Right. Like, at the time they're born. Right. Like sure. that doesn't change. And that's in part why fertility for people with a uterus and ovaries declines over time. I was just having this conversation with my kids the other day and I was like, you know, I have a, a kid who's non-binary and has a uterus. And I was like, you were born with all of your gametes and they're just going to decline over time. And your your brother can like make sperm until he's like 70. Like, it's fascinating. But we were talking about this in the context of his genetics. Robert De Niro, exam. 80 yeah. years old, just yeah. having a kid with a 29 year old. It's like crazy Again, over here. Totally unfair. But like, this is the reality. <laughs> and it's important for people to like understand that. And so they can make decisions about their fertility and when they might or might not want to have kids. So that is true. Like whether or not there are things that we can do to change the AMH hormone, I don't know. And, you know, it, it is true that acupuncture in like randomized controlled trials has been proven to help with some health conditions, right? Sure. And there's a lot that we don't understand, even about, you know, medicines that we use and certainly about acupuncture and other techniques. Um, there are, and also just a level set, like pregnancy requires a functional uterus, functional tubes, functional ovaries. And so it's actually kind of amazing that like that anyone gets pregnant because like, I know, right? can go wrong with any of those parameters. And there can be either subfertility or decreased fertility or infertility. You know, the most common causes of infertility are actually tubal disease related mm. to sexually transmitted infections, which goes back to our prior conversation. So I think it's really important for people to understand that sexually transmitted infections are rising in this country. Important to have open and honest conversations with your partner or partners, protect yourself, use condoms, get tested frequently, and get treated if you have an STI, because a lingering STI can cause a lot of damage to the tubes that can then lead to decreased fertility or infertility in the long run. Are there other things that people can do other than avoiding STIs? You know, most of the literature supports not smoking at all, that smoking can have an impact with the um, motility of the fallopian tubes and fertility 
alcohol, too much alcohol can be a real factor. And then of course, just like eating a healthy diet, trying to reduce stress. Those are all things that are hard to do, right? And so I think just being reasonable and making sure that you're not stressing yourself out more by trying to lead a super healthy life and do all the right things, but certainly doing whatever was in your power to try to reduce stress as much as you can without it feeling like a whole other job or a whole other thing to manage. Because it can feel like a whole other job and a whole yeah. it's t- it is It is tough. You talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, even, you know, educating people about not just how to not get pregnant or how to get pregnant, but also about pleasure. I uh, connected with an old acquaintance of mine who is now probably in her late 40s, almost 50, but she and I were talking about something completely different. We were actually talking about voters' rights and all the other fun things going on in the world. And, you know, she said, well, and she asked me about my, you know, kind of parent journey and she said, well, you know, I, I have a daughter. I said, yes, no, no, no. I, I saw that, you know, on Facebook or what have you. And she said, I got pregnant myself at almost 46 years old. And I said, well, talk to me. She said, can I give you my unsolicited advice? I said, sure, let's hear it. She said, I masturbated one to two times a day for a year, lived a healthy lifestyle. She did a lot of self-help work on herself, which I love, regardless if you're trying to get pregnant or not. 10 out of 10 recommend loving yourself and working on yourself. And then she did at home, which is I see I, I think I, there's so many ways of what they call IUI, IVF, IC, I think it's ICI. She um, had a friend of hers ejaculate, you know, and she used mm-hmm. an at home kit to get pregnant herself. And she was really dead set that having an orgasm while insemination is happening is what gets you pregnant. Is there, I could not find any information online about that. Is orgasming important to happen while you're trying to get pregnant? Like, does it matter? So I think there has been like one or two studies to show that there was an increased rate of pregnancy with people who had heterosexual, like penis and vagina sex. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't been rigorously studied in like a randomized controlled trial. That would be a very hard thing to to study. That being said, like, you know, I'm never going to like block someone's orgasm. So if, if sure. someone feels like that might be important to them in their process or they're comfortable with that, that sounds amazing. You know, theoretically, it could help, right? Like when someone orgasms, there are uterine contractions, the uterine contractions could help to open up the cervix a little bit. Mm. And maybe there's a difference there. But it's really hard to say that the literature fully supports that. But also, like, I'm not going to be at the doctor's office getting IUI or IVF and like, or that's crazy. Like, I'm I mean, gonna, do people you know, do? I don't, people I don't have what? orgasms to give sperm donations, right? Yeah, or but the like, doctor's you know, like not in the after, room. No, not in the room. Yeah, See what I'm saying? <laughs> See, that's, that's like the crazy part. Okay, well, thank you for at least sort of clear. I mean, I I think you cleared it up for me, but I'm like, yeah. and from what is out there, but I was like, girl, I don't know about yeah. this. I was like, but I don't at, think I'm at like, home yeah. insemination is sure. a possibility. And there are, I think there probably aren't that many, but there are some providers who will do at home intrauterine insemination as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, mine won't and that's okay. But I, I was just thinking, I was like, I don't know. I was like, there is a lot happening over here. I don't know if like, if I can handle that whole additional um, vulnerability while going yeah. through this, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, no, I really appreciate that. Are there any like wives tales about getting pregnant that you're like, well, let me just clear this up? Like, oh, ah. 
So many, I would say, um, you know, the probably like the funniest one you you can like picture is like the woman with like her legs straight up after. Oh, yes. Sex. Yeah, that's not real. Oh, she um, also told me to do that. My this woman told me that she inseminated herself, had an orgasm and then sp- had her legs up against the wall, you know, like L shaped for four hours and fell asleep. I was like. Oh no! I don't know if that's good for you. I know. Did she walk afterwards with her legs asleep? Like I don't. Even I, they had but, to have been asleep. Okay, so that's yeah. a wives' tale. Yeah, I mean, most providers will recommend sort of just like lifting your pelvis a little bit on a pillow just for a little while to make sure that the semen stays down in the back of the vagina and has the chance to swim up to the cervix. But like legs straight up in the air for a long period of time, no. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of old like wives' tales around sort of like having sex at the certain cycle of the moon to help dictate mm. the sex of the baby. And yeah, don't think that has worked. But if someone figures that out, they'll probably be a millionaire. Uh, and yeah, they definitely live in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> and they have like a tarot card, you know, like totally. or whatever. Okay, so those are wives' tales that don't work. All right, that makes sense. Yeah, the moon. I mean, maybe. Some people really feel like they, I, I for a moment felt like I was really getting my period at the full moon of every month, but then that sort of changed. And I was like, hmm, mm. I don't know if I just sort of made You were that synced up. up with the moon. That's fascinating. Synced up with the moon. Yeah, I don't know if that was real, but maybe for a minute. I don't, I don't really know. It, yeah, just definitely changed. Okay, so ladies, you don't need to just have your legs go numb in the air because that seems ridiculous. That's a pretty strong wives' tales, though. That, yeah. That one sticks for sure. And uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I have a dear friend who was on this show, uh, and we spoke about it a little bit, Winter. She went viral, like on Good Morning America vibes viral, about wow. um, writing an article that she was taking Ozempic to try to get pregnant. Ozempic is something that a lot of my listeners are on. I'm on another show. A lot of Ozempic talk. We are not Ozempic shamers here. I am not. I'm like, do you with your body. Oprah, you look amazing. I don't know why anybody would shame Oprah at this point about her body. I just read that she was like, I'm over it. I'm on Ozempic. Leave me alone. Like, leave Oprah alone. But it was interesting because Winter was like, listen, I was overweight. I was technically obese and I was having a really, really hard time with IVF and my doctor had suggested this and it's changed my life and I love it, et cetera. Me trying to get pregnant, I was advised by a few like my OB and a few other doctors to not and I'm not on Ozempic, but to not take Ozempic because there wasn't enough studies about being on it. Have you seen an uptick with patients or even on TikTok asking about trying to get pregnant and being on Ozempic or if you're on Ozempic and you should go off of it if you get pregnant. I feel like it's so zeitgeisty right now. Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, the these drugs are relatively new, right? Yeah. Um, although they have been around in sort of clinical trials for a sure. while and they have not been studied in people who are pregnant, right? So whether they can be used before someone gets pregnant, if they want to lose weight or that's important to help them regulate their ovulation, you know, that's possible, but it is true that they have not been studied during pregnancy. So it's going to be really important that someone stops it before they're actually pregnant, right? Um, Because we don't know if there could be negative risks to the fetus and that could cause problems with the baby in the future. Another thing though, that we have seen is sort of conversely that providers who are giving these medications sometimes aren't even aware of is that Manjaro 
one of the injectable medications that was approved for type 2 diabetes and the newer version was most recently approved for weight loss, that on the label itself, it says that it could decrease the efficacy of birth control and that people using it should use a backup method or a different method. Um, so that's Ooh. something that's important for, yeah, your listeners to know. That's um, super important. Mm-hmm. Who even yeah, cares about like, the pregnancy part? That's the most important part we've been talking <laughs> yeah. about. So wait, wow. Because yeah. again, you were saying at, at the beginning that a lot of people ask you about different medications or smoking or drinking or what have you or cannabis. Exactly in regards to the um, efficacy of birth control, but a lot of people are on Monjaro. A lot so of people are on these medications and they don't know this. And again, I've been asking like all the providers I know who are prescribing this, if this is something they're counseling their patients about and they didn't even know. But if you, I mean, you can just like look it up yourself. It's on sure. the label, but like who reads the label <laughs> like of all these medications? Cause there's a lot of stuff on there, but yeah, the way that it works in part is by decreasing gastric emptying. Um, so that can cause um, decreased efficacy of the birth control pills specifically, not other types of birth control like the ring or the patch or intrauterine devices. But for oh, yeah, because you're take taking it orally. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they recommend that if you are taking the pills, you know, consider switching to another method or if you want to stay on the pill because it's working for you to use a backup method like internal or external condoms for four weeks after your initial injection and for four weeks after any time the dose has changed. Yikes. Yes. So yeah. So we have a little ladies, explainer. Use some, yeah. Use some use condoms. That's crazy. That's I mean, because I think you're injecting yourself every week, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So just four weeks after the initial injection. And then, you know, if the dose doesn't change, oh, then got you should it. be if good. But changes. if they up your dose, right, then you'd have to, to use a backup method again for four weeks. We have a little explainer video about this on TikTok as well as a um, FAQ article on our website, Bedsider. But it's something that people really don't know about. And I've heard a number of doctors being like, I'm really, or providers saying like, I'm really concerned we're going to have a bunch of like, you know, we'll go V babies in the future. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I would think a lot of Wegovy babies because a lot of people are on Wegovy. It's very hard to get. And I think a lot of, at least a lot of the people that I know that are on those drugs are feeling better about themselves and and maybe they're having more sex. So yeah, maybe we're we're going to see quite a bit of Wegovy babies. I mean, I just did a lot of my own research about antidepressants and and pregnancy cuz I'm on an antidepressant mm-hmm. and I don't want to go off of it. So I, you know, and my practitioner was like, "Listen, I can't make this decision for like here are all of the medical research and journals." Yep. You know what is very tedious and long and hard to read? are those studies. But yes. I'm grateful that he told me to do that because it is important. I think just as it is, is important to, you know, speak to a practitioner, like really do that research to try. You have to be your own advocate Absolutely. is the end of the day. And so I was glad that I was like, oh my God, are you giving me a homework assignment? Just tell me if I can stay on these things or not. Oh, And he's like, no, you got to make that decision for yourself. I yeah. can't make that for you. So Maybe we should read the labels. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, that's what's hard, right? About like being a provider and being a patient or a person is like, these things are often complicated. The research is showing you on mass on a population basis what they found, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be your individual experience, right? right? And we need to have better ways to communicate risks 
in a way that people understand. If you start talking about big numbers, like one out of a million, like what does that what does that mean to me? I don't even understand. You know, it's hard it's to crazy. conceptualize. So we need to have better tools to sort of help people communicate about risks and increase literacy so that people can make informed decisions and say, you know what, I understand this. I understand what the risk is for me. And, and now I understand that I'm going to continue taking this medication that's important for me, or I understand the risks and I'm going to, to go off of it. And this is how. Yeah. It's been hard to find. Even I live in LA. It's a huge metropolitan city. There's lots of folks, lots of practitioners. It's been hard for me to find practitioners. I mean, you go word of mouth, which is typically, I think, what most people do. I remember first moving to LA and I'm like, dude, how, like, what? Like, how do I find a dentist? I go to a children's dentist because I really (laughs) like her and somebody referred me, which is sort of insane because I curse all the time and I like go in and there's Hello Kitties and Kuropis everywhere and I'm like, whatever. But I love Dr. Emily. Shout out Dr. Emily. Don't care if it's like for kids. She's my only girl for my teeth. But you know, especially when it comes to IU, any type of fertility practitioner, yeah. even OB, it's tough because it's really, really personal. I, I went to one doctor, he was fine, but it didn't feel right. So I was, I really had to sit with it and try to find someone else. Do you have any of, I mean, you're so wonderful. You live so far Aww. away from me, so I can't <laughs> Thank you. bark up your tree about being my practitioner, but what, how do you, do you have any tips or tricks or recommendations for somebody looking to find any kind of care in wherever they live? Um, yeah. Yeah. It is really hard, right? And we sort of started this conversation talking about how people are increasingly accessing information online, which is true. We just recently mm-hmm. did a survey of young people and it showed that 25% of respondents received information about birth control from social media in the last year, which is a big number. But 86 of them actually had preferred to receive information from a healthcare provider. Mm. And that part of that gap could be just what you're talking about, is like just how difficult it is to find a provider, period, let alone a provider that you're comfortable with. Um, and you and I are like living in these coastal cities where there's right. lots of healthcare institutions. Imagine you're in like the middle of America or, or in a rural community. Also where the, the practitioner is also like, you know, the person who leads your church or synagogue or, you know, your mom's friend. So literally my worst nightmare. Yes. I'll never fr- my first doctor was like because I lived in a smaller town was like yeah. everybody's friend and I hated him. Yeah. He was so like I remember being a kid and just hating going to the doctor. But he was like the town doctor. Like and if that's like, your only Dude. option. Right. It was terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. So again, that's why it's really important, the work that we're doing to increase access to information where people are and democratize access so that even if you are someone in a rural community who doesn't have someone that you can talk to, you at least have this important information. But sometimes you do need to go in and to see a provider. And so I highly recommend that people you know, reach out to friends and family members and get personal recommendations if they can. There's a ton of um, reviews on the internet, which you know take with a grain of salt, but certainly do your research. If someone is looking for a provider for reproductive health services, they can visit our clinic finder on bedsider.org, where we have more than 13,000 in-person and telehealth clinics. Um, oh, that's something else really important to note is that you know telehealth is increasing access to conversations with providers for mental health, for reproductive health, and many other things. So that's also a great modality to be able to find a provider that works for you. And if you know you navigate all of that journey and finally found a provider and it just doesn't feel right to you, don't be afraid to look for another option or to ask questions or say like, 
actually, I don't feel like you're listening to me or understanding me. This is my situation. This is my partner. This is, you know, what I need. Um, don't feel like you can't push back. I feel like we are all trained to sort of be differential to the white code and to providers. And that has led to a situation where there's a lot of bias in healthcare or people don't feel listened to and frankly, really bad outcomes in this country. And so we have to empower patients, unfortunately, to feel comfortable sticking up for themselves if they don't feel like they're getting the care that they need. You are my new favorite follow on TikTok. <laughs> Even though I am actively trying to get pregnant, not not trying to get pregnant, but I really you're doing really, really important special work. And I was so happy to find you and find out about you. And I'm so grateful that you came on cool, cool, cool to just educate m me and my listeners. And I really it's it's a rough world out there and you're doing like really important work. So thank you so much. I really, really mean it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about this work that I'm so passionate about at this time where there are crazy attacks on reproductive health care. It's fun to have this really good conversation with you and to destigmatize all of these topics in a meaningful way. And I didn't think I was going to get teary, but I'm PMSing so hard. <laughs> I'm like, why am I starting to cry saying goodbye to you on my show? Welcome to Cool, 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 guys, where crying is cool. There you go. I got to go track. Now I need to go track my ovulation. That's right. I'm, you might I'm be ovulating. No, I can't be. I'm about to get my period. Oh, yeah. No, that's just PMS. <laughs> <laughs>